Welcome to Higher Calling Wildlife with award-winning wildlife journalist Chester Moore. From deep investigations to interviews with top experts, Higher Calling Wildlife is the place to get informed and inspired about all things wildlife. Welcome to Higher Calling Wildlife. This is Chester Moore. Cloning is something that for a long time was part of the science fiction realm. And then years ago, we heard about the cloning of Dolly the sheep. And since then, cloning has been there in the background, especially in agricultural realms, dealing with cloning particular animals for breeding purposes, scientific purposes. And now it has crossed over into the wildlife realm. Uh, cloning is now an official part of wildlife conservation efforts at the federal government level. We had a program on higher calling wildlife. We talked about the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service cloning a black-footed ferret. To talk more about cloning of wildlife, including bringing back the thylacine and maybe even the mammoth, we have Ben Novak from Revive and Restore, an absolutely fascinating conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Chester. So just for the public out there, what exactly is Revive and Restore? What does it do? Uh, Revive and Restore is a nonprofit uh, conservation organization. Mm -hmm. And we're unique in that we're really the only one in the world that is promoting both the innovation and adoption of biotechnologies for conservation across a spectrum of technologies and, and applications that we uh, we call the 21st Century Genetic Rescue Toolkit, which, you know, basically goes from everything from where we're at today with technology to use things like genome sequencing um, and biobanking to make better decisions with conservation right now and prepare for the future mm -hmm. to actually spearheading and developing brand new technologies and reproduction and gene editing so that we can do completely new things and tackle the most serious problems that conservation has. Yeah, and a big problem with conservation, and I'll use the red wolf as an example because I live in Orange County, Texas, where about one half of the exist existing pure red wolves were captured in between 1973 and 1980 for a captive breeding program that began with 14 animals. And uh, there were similar situations with the Mexican gray and things like that. So it looks like in some of these endangered wildlife scenarios, like genetic bottlenecks or genetic issues could be a real challenge for conservationists. Yeah. I mean, that's where we're at. Um, the, the, a lot of people talk about the sixth mass extinction, whether we're at the start, whether we're, you know, it's ongoing, the middle, what's going on. But you know, the, the reality of this, I actually come from a, um, a long paleontology, paleo, paleoecology background, come from long-term thinking. And, and the, the data is irrefutable that humans have been causing extinctions ever since they left Africa 125,000 years ago. Uh, by the way, we, you know, we, we, we hunt differently with technology than any other species. Um, you know, whereas wolves and lions and other things will preferentially go for young and older individuals, ones that are weaker, so it's safer for them to take down. Humans have technology that allows us to take out the prime bull, the, the matriarch female of a population, and completely destabilize the, the breeding of those populations. We started doing that 
125,000 years ago, wiping out super megafauna across the planet, everywhere we uh, newly migrated to. And in the last 10,000 or so years, as we developed agriculture, we really started transforming landscapes to our own needs, mm-hmm. um, domesticating both plants and animal species to, to our own needs, which we've, we've made them so alien to nature that when they escape to nature, and into new places, they cause problems for the native wildlife. And then in the last 500 to 600 years of European colonialization, we get this just ramped up industrialization of over-harvesting, um, you know, uh, the spread of invasive species with their diseases, pollution. And in just the last 120 years, we see the, the complete chemical change of the entire planet from the atmosphere to the soil with plastic, uh, uh, you know, different types mm-hmm. of carbon, hydrocarbon emissions. And, and then basically we've, we've now through industrialization terraformed this planet into a completely different geological age. And all of that has served to just cripple wild populations, isolating them, fragmenting them, and so while a lot of times when we think about what's driving species to extinction, habitat loss and, and, uh, and maybe overhunting, things like that, while habitat loss, stuff like that, is still an issue, we know how to fix that. We know how to reclaim land. We are getting better at making corridors. We have to prioritize that there's a lot of infrastructure that has to change there. Mm-hmm. But even if we do that, we're facing a future in which with isolating and fragmenting and bottlenecking these populations, they no longer have the genetic variation that they had evolved over hundreds of thousands of years that is the basis for adaptation. And now that we have a rapidly changing climate, even if we restore habitats, we will have potentially very weak, non-adaptable populations that even if they look like they're getting better, any kind of rapid change could send them over the edge. And with the spread of disease, we have species that not only don't have the uh, diversity to adapt to those new diseases, but with never having been exposed to them, they have no innate genetics at all to cope with it. Um, there's there's a, a, a host of different issues that are emerging as long-term future issues that those conventional methods of conservation are just not going to be able to tackle. Mm-hmm. And biotech is... is the the frontier to actually get it done very interesting well what drew me to call you back was something i saw about one of my favorite all-time animals that ever lived something called the thylacine also known as the tasmanian tiger that uh, although there are still possible reports out there uh believed it went extinct in the 1930s and that there are talks at least about potentially bringing the thylacine back through cloning Oh, they're doing more than talking. They, they're on. They're on the road. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So the thylacine was one of the the first species that excited me about recently extinct species. Mm-hmm. I mean, I work on on biotech in general for conservation, but but what really drove me here was the idea of bringing back extinct species mm-hmm. because that's a long term kind of vision too. We've sure. been we've been doing it for a couple hundred years. You know, anybody. Um, if anybody goes and sees some elk out in Western Texas, those were reintroduced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were absent. Well. For a, yeah, they were yeah absent for a century and then reintroduced. 
Um, there's entire national parks, public lands, and ecosystems in the eastern U.S. and the western that have species that have been put back mm-hmm. um, after decades to centuries of absence. Um, but, of course, how would you do that with a Tasmanian tiger? Yeah. There are no living Tasmanian tigers anywhere else. There, there are no uh, close relatives that even look like them or could serve their ecological purpose. And so for the vast majority of, of diversity that we've lost to this state, those species that have been driven extinct in the last 125,000 years, that all still have a place in today's world. I mean, it's, it's important, I think, to recognize that any species alive today or at any point in paleontological history had a lifespan expectancy of anywhere between three and five million years before they went extinct or evolved into something else. And so we might think, oh, we Tasmanian tigers, mammoths, passenger pigeons, they went extinct a long time ago. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the world has changed. And that's not quite how it works, right? So these were species that over hundreds of thousands to millions of years were adapting to changing environments and were there. Mm-hmm. And so we could bring back tons of stuff to restore ecosystems and bring back diversity. And that's what these de-extinction projects are about. They're about restoring whole ecosystems and bringing in biotech to do what what we've wanted to do for a long time, but couldn't. And the thylacine is an awesome new project that uh, it's, it's great to see it getting used. Um, it's a project that various professors in Australia have been trying to get off the ground for 20 years, you know, 10 years before the technology even existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and just recently got major funding uh, through some, uh, I think both philanthropic and, uh, the, and from the for-profit company Colossal, which is running the Mammoth Project. Well, the, the thylacine thing's fascinating because that is a, you know, recent extinction. And, uh, you know, I know like when the cloning was done that you guys worked on for the black-footed ferret, there was a specimen, I believe, from like 1987, 88, in a cryo zoo in, in San Diego that was well-preserved. But um, what kind of material is left? I'm sure, I know that there are specimens from museums and pelts and things like that. So what would it look like the process of like, okay, we're going to, we, where would we go find the DNA for this? Yeah. So, so with the extinction, and there's, there's a lot to un, unpack. Um, I think the term makes people think that we're, we're going to literally resurrect the thylacine or a mammoth or a passenger pigeon. Um, and and that's due to due to the limitations not just of the technology, but of that old DNA. It's mm-hmm. it's just not possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have that living cell in the freezer, um, in the cryo tank, to actually revive an organism. The technologies that have emerged to turn the extinction from science fiction to science reality are the fact that one, we can sequence DNA from those old museum specimens, those mm-hmm. skin pelts, bones, taxidermied animals, um, as well as bones from permafrost and caves that mm-hmm. go back to tens of thousands of years. Um, we can get DNA. We can get basically whole genomes from those. The DNA is fragmented, degraded, but we can get the whole sequence from it mm-hmm. and, and compare it to a living species genome. And then... What we can do with gene editing technology, uh, which has rapidly advanced in the last 10 years, is take that living genome, take a cell from, say, a 
um, the Dunart, a little marsupial mm-hmm. in Australia related to the thylacine, take some cells, grow them in a Petri dish, and edit its DNA so that it starts uh, uh, looking more and more thylacine. Okay. The goal would be to make a genome that basically has the same code as the thylacine. That's, that's a little out of reach still to, to do, mm-hmm. but we can certainly target dozens to hundreds of genes right now that will have huge impact on the, the look and behavior of an organism and give it the right ecology. Um, Colossal, through the mammoth and the thylacine projects, are hoping to spearhead uh, higher-scale gene editing techniques so they can get up to thousands, tens of thousands of edits in those cell cultures, and also developing new reproductive technologies um, to, to make it easier and better to turn those cells in a Petri dish into a living organism. And those new organisms, you know, the, the goal for all of us will be that someone can look at a de-extinct mammoth or de-extinct passenger pigeon and go, you know, wow, that's, that's a mammoth brought back to life. But scientifically it's, it's a hybrid between old mammoth DNA Mm -hmm. that's been resynthesized and edited into a living elephant. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's something new, but to the ecosystem and to the casual observer, you know, it should, it should be a complete, uh, mirror of what was, what was from the past. In other words, and it, would start resuming it. it would fill yeah, the exactly. niche. Yeah, exactly. And fill the niche. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. The thylacine is going to be a hard one, you know, yeah. of, of all, there's only four de-extinction projects going in the world today. Mm-hmm. Um, two at Revive and Restore with the that I lead, the passenger pigeon, the pigeon and the heath hen, both eastern North American birds. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge we have with the birds is, um, is developing the right reproductive technology. They lay eggs. Yeah, it's not. Mm. It's a completely different system from a mammal. Sure, but um, you took the ferret. And you put it into a European ferret, which is the one we have in, in pets, like a domestic ferret, that was able yeah. to give birth. So, man, I didn't think about the birds being a different level because of the eggs. Yeah, cloning is not a technology that, that's applicable to birds mm-hmm. because, yeah, because of the way they form and lay eggs. So we have to uh, uh, adapt um, and, and expand the, the toolkit for bird reproduction to get there. In the mammoth, uh, the mammoth is technically the one of the easiest ones to do because mammoths are so extremely genetically close to living elephants and morphologically as well. When you, if you shave the wool off of a mammoth and, and look underneath the skin, um, you know, I know paleontologists that have, haven't been able to tell the difference between mammoth and elephant bone. Wow. You know, um, and, and we're looking specifically with mammoths, not mastodons as an Asiatic elephant, right? Yeah, we had them in the U.S. too, though. So woolly woolly mammoths are one species mm-hmm. that roamed um, uh, Eurasia mm-hmm. all the way through North America, Canada, down into mm-hmm. the northern United States. But um, but there were a couple other related mammoth species. The Colombian mammoth lived in Texas. Um, it was bigger. It was mm-hmm. bigger than than the woolly mammoth and living elephants today. It did not have hair, you know. It was it was inhabiting much warmer climate, so it was mm-hmm. it was a lot like a giant elephant of North America, but mm-hmm. uh, really cool, huge tusks. Um, 
you know, the, um, and so there's, there are some people actually that, that talked about bringing elephants into the United States for re- rewilding purposes and whatnot, and yeah. bringing back our huge mm-hmm. megafauna. But, but the current real ongoing mammoth project is, is about Siberia and, and, and sure. some really Arctic areas where they used to live. But yeah, that one's a, you know, in theory, from the genetic standpoint, that one's going to be much easier. But once again, the reproduction complications there, of course, are that elephants have a two-year pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, living elephants are an endangered species, so Colossal's working to try and develop a synthetic uterus to be able to give wow. birth to wow. to mammoths. And, and that by itself is going to revolutionize a lot of science. Wow. Um, I've heard a lot. Of, look, I've, I've usually asked questions on my programs that wildlife people maybe haven't. I've never heard. This is a new one, folks, for outdoors and wildlife radio. We just heard the word synthetic uterus. So, uh, but that, so, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, that is an interesting dynamic because, you know, Asian elephants only 40 to 50,000 in the wild, you know, a fair amount in captivity. But there's definitely would be red tape and things like that to deal with in terms of messing with an elephant like that. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. When you're dealing with an endangered species, um, every female counts yeah, for sure. um, towards producing more elephants. Yep. You don't want to take 10 to 20 elephants to get one baby mammoth yeah. when they yeah. could have each produced a baby elephant. Yeah. The other thing is actually physiological. Um, pregnancy is in any reproductive work. Uh, you know, anybody that's familiar with cloning cattle, horses, whatnot, you know, the pregnancy is the the challenging stage. Things can look good early on and then you lose the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just like natural pregnancies, it is a sensitive time period. The elephant's two-year pregnancy is just a long, long time to to be dealing with, with the potential risk of losing an, losing a baby. Where, where you could possibly intervene if you had easy access. The other thing is the elephant babies become so heavy that six months into that two-year pregnancy, they sink into the abdominal cavity in such a way that makes it almost impossible to monitor through ultrasound and other techniques. So you're flying blind for 18 months, not knowing is my baby alive or not. So the synthetic uterus idea just, presents a lot of uh, new uh, new advantage. I mean, a lot of advantages to to trying to do this. And then we move on to the thylacine. We have completely different challenges from a genetics level. The thylacine will be the most difficult of these species to recreate. It is extremely evolutionarily different from its living relatives. It's you know its body, its bones, everything, everything. If you take if you took a Dunart or a Quoll or a Tasmanian Devil, any of them, and tried to make them into a thylacine, you're talking about transforming an entire organism. And with the mammoth, you're just giving it wool and fat and some some other cold adaptations. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's going to pop out looking like a hairy elephant. Um, you know, with passenger pigeons, we're changing some feather shapes, some colors, some behaviors, but a pigeon is a pigeon ultimately, right? A thylacine is not any of those living relatives. But from the reproductive angle, marsupials are probably going to be the easiest ones to work with because they, yeah, because of the pouch. All marsupials 
no matter how big they end up growing up, are born Tiny. at the exact same premature size. Yeah, 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 yeah. And can be raised in a in a, a, a knitted bag, mm-hmm. you know, with a with a a, a, a milk bottle stuck yeah. through wow. as the source of food. It's and the reason I thought about the pouch thing. I have a small zoologic facility here. We use to work with kids, and we have sugar gliders, and uh, you know. My God, little sugar gliders, like tiny, 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 tiny guy, you know? And like, so kangaroos are about the same size when they're born, you know? So come out of the pouch, come into the pouch. So that's interesting stuff there. And in terms of the the tech, now I have to ask this. You probably don't have an exact answer, but uh, what kind of timeline we'll be looking at for potentially could we see a thylacine-type creature or a mammoth? Is it- <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the minute you said that I probably don't have an answer. I just, I knew it was you the know, timeline. I'm a question. journalist. I have to ask this stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, for both the thylacine and the mammoth projects, they, they have millions of dollars that have just come in now, um, you know, from people really interested in investing in the technologies like a synthetic uterus and, mm-hmm. and the potential that these technologies have for biomedicine and agriculture. So um, with that kind of money coming in, you know, we could definitely be looking at seeing, thylacines in in a in a 10-year period wow um i would say 15 to 20 is is a maximum mm-hmm. um the key hiccup will be the gene editing technology uh-huh. as of right now the most edits someone has made at a single time in a cell is 33 uh-huh. and and you know to really recreate a thylacine they're going to have to make probably tens to hundreds of thousands of changes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that can take, if we, if we were only doing 33 at a time, it'll take hundreds of years just in a Petri dish to do that. Yeah. So, so uh, one of the main things uh, that Colossal and other science, uh, other labs around the world will be advancing is, is bumping up that number mm-hmm. so that we can do hundreds to thousands of changes at once. And so then the process would look like you take, the cells of a Dunart, and you put in a you know a few thousand mutations. Um, you then kind of take grow the cells up a bit, isolate a few, grow those out, and then you got to check on them, right? So you check each little population of cells and go, okay, sequence the genome. We're all the mutations done the right way, mm-hmm. and when you get the ones that are perfect, you then do another round of a few thousand, right, or so, and and you basically do that kind of cell growth process again and again until you get the genome you want. Mm-hmm. And probably a nuance people don't care about, but a little hiccup is you can't grow cells forever in a Petri dish. Okay. They, they degrade okay, over yeah. time. Okay. So, so another field of science that has to advance for this is the creation of stem cells to do this work. Stem cells can grow in a Petri dish Mm -hmm. theoretically forever um, versus other cell types. So, so this team needs to create stem cell cultures from some living marsupial, then have high capacity uh, gene editing capability. And then, you know, finally have that ability to grow that embryo to a certain stage and get it into a surrogate mother or a surrogate pouch. Mm-hmm. Um, all that technology could be developed within the next five 
to seven years or so. Mm-hmm. And so you would be looking at maybe seven-ish, eight years out, people actually creating the, the thylacine. And because it will have such a short reproductive uh, uh, stage, such a short pregnancy and, and gestation, I mean, you know, once they start making embryos, you know, we're only two months away from seeing something that's a thylacine, you know, less than that, right? It'll be born in three weeks and, and then we'll be waiting just a couple of weeks to see if it's growing the right way. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that would be the ideal way, right? You get that, you know, didn't go the, the alternate kind of compromise route, which is something we're kind of hoping to avoid, but in our passenger pigeon project are looking at being kind of a, a reality maybe is that we, we get the cells we need mm-hmm. to do this work. In, in birds, it has to be a cell type that can become reproductive. So uh, we, we are currently trying to advance both stem cell and um, well, a, very, a variety of certain stem cell technologies for the birds to do this, um, which will open up a lot of things just for all birds, um, not just the extinct ones. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, we may have to do you know as many mutations as we can and then actually create a bird and see, you know, okay, is this the de-extinct passenger pigeon? And if not, then take some cells from that bird we made, culture those, and then, you know, do the process over. So it might be a, a combination of working in the Petri dish, making some animals, then working in the Petri dish again, and repeating. Now, that's something that's pretty feasible to do for something like a passenger pigeon and a thylacine, that is not something that's feasible to do for the mammoth because no. <laughs> every time you want to create an animal, you're waiting two years yeah. to give birth. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, but yeah, with marsupials and birds, it's like, Oh, well, you wait a couple months and then, and then you see, and then try again. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. Uh, so I know you're into the bird thing. You guys are, are working hard on birds. I got two birds that interest me and have for years that are on that recent extinction list. And one possibly, maybe there's a few left, you know, the ivory bill woodpecker and the imperial woodpecker. Uh, has there been any talk about either one of those species? Well, so I, of course, am a a, uh, a, a bird guy. I, mm-hmm. I That's part of the reason I lead the bird project. Yep. Um, and... I do believe for both Carolina parakeet, um, if we, if we, actually, if we talk about kind of all of the the, the famous North American yeah. extinct birds, um, we we have a genome for the great auk. Um, a team in Europe sequenced that. Um, we do have a genome for the Carolina parakeet. Uh, a U.S. lab sequenced that. Mm-hmm. I I think there's a genome for the ivory billed woodpecker, but I'll have to double check. But yeah. Ultimately, sequencing those genomes aren't difficult. You know, I've gone, I've been to dozens of museums around the country. I've seen the specimens of these species, yeah. and getting the genomes is not difficult. Just now, as I've talked about it a couple times, but so just just this year, Revive and Restore launched the Biotechnology for Bird Conservation Program, mm-hmm. and that's aiming to overcome these reproductive technology challenges for birds. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in the next five years, if the projects we're backing succeed, it'll be absolutely revolutionary for for bird science and conservation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, once we start making the advances we need for for different types of birds, 
it's going to be a lot easier to think about projects like a Carolina parakeet, great hawk or ivory billed woodpecker project. Uh Um, of course people, a lot of people think they've, they've been spotting ivory billed woodpeckers. So, well, you know, so maybe they're still out there, there. There may be one or two nos. I actually went out on the yeah. Zeiss Sports Optics, did a search for RV Bills in 2002. And uh, I got to go out with David Luno, uh, University of Arkansas, the guy who got the clip, that got the feds to think they might still be some, and a guy named Martian Lamertink, um, who was a birder. And it was a really interesting look at it. But definitely in that recent extinction to where you're not looking at back at, you know, you know, thousands of years of having to do whatever in de- degradation. You're talking about at least, what, in the 1930s or 40s specimens around, that kind of stuff. So it's an interesting bird. Is it possible that this technology could aid endangered birds that we have in terms of being able to kind of open up and diversify the genetics or i mean i'm not a geneticist i just know this is a question that i have so uh, bear with me but that that is the that is the ultimate goal yeah you know i mean yeah, from the beginning of reviving our store with these moonshot de-extinction efforts all the technology we have to develop to recreate something that serves the ecological role of the passenger pigeon mm-hmm. is is a technology that can help an endangered or threatened species immediately yeah. or even species that aren't endangered yet, but are still having some problems, you know, like things like chronic wasting disease for deer is yeah. something we could start trying to fix. Movie um, we're talking about a... technologies. We're talking about technologies to try and give species better immunity yeah. or technologies that could try and wipe out those diseases. You know, thanks to the fact that so many people were willing to save tissue, you know, uh, stuffed specimens and, and ethanol jar specimens of things they were killing over the past. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can tap into that sequence its DNA and literally resurrect genetic diversity that's been lost wow. in populations that are still alive. Um, and that's going to be a really, I mean, it's going to be a really powerful thing for conservation. You know, thinking of the red wolves, yeah. there are a number of hybrid animals in the wild that yes. carry alleles from red wolves that the captive population doesn't have. Yep, in Galveston, Iowa, we right could, e- yeah, we could edit those alleles into the pure red wolves and get more diversity into those red wolves. We could, we could actually just use those hybrids, breed them into the population. And similar to how cattlemen and others track genetics for the way they breed, we could do genome sequencing and, you know, work to breed in new diversity while keeping that coyote lineage low. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a lot we could do um, for, for, for conservation using the information from genomics and the power of gene editing. I would have loved to have cloned a historic red wolf. Man. Like we did for the black-footed ferret, but the sad thing is, I looked into it, uh-huh. and of those animals captured where you're at in Texas back in the '70s, yep, not a single tissue sample was saved. Wow, that's interesting. Um, you know, because I my first article I wrote 30 years ago this October when I was 18 years old was on red wolves and the history here. First published thing I ever did. It's been a huge passion of mine for a long time. And, you know, they had 
they captured 400 animals and they thought 14 were however they broke it down. There's different stories of how they broke it down into actually being red bulls. It didn't have the tech we have now. But that's interesting to think there wasn't any kind of tissue saved. Yeah, not from those 14 that they kept and, and none from the 386. Yeah. Um, that that where there could have been lots of red wolves right (laughs) well Um, i'll tell you what's interesting about this uh you know i got a picture the other day from a friend of mine i've gotten game cam photos of animals over the years that are if you looked at them just eyeballed them they'd look exactly like the captive breeding program animals i mean so they're yeah i mean probably have some red wolf dna in there as proven by what happened in galveston you know yeah, so, so there's a recent paper out from Bridget Von Holt's team who've been studying those hybrids, and it's, mm-hmm. a, it's an incredible phenomenon because in, in conservation genomics, there's been this idea for a long time that, you know, species are adapted to their environment. That's, yeah. You know, that's why they exist, right? Mm-hmm. It's been unknown, really, as to how, how genetic that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's really neat to me, what we're seeing in these hybrid coyotes is that not only is there a lot of red wolf ancestry persisting yeah. in the Galveston animals and the, and the Southeast animals, but all the way up into Northwestern Texas is red wolf. Well, the last, and it actually, the last e- email I got from a friend of mine is in, in the, on the, on the Oklahoma border on the Oklahoma side of this animal. And it looks, it ain't just got pure, you know, Nevada coyote genes. Obviously, something else yeah, is in the so mix, you know? What's interesting is is it actually looks like red wolf genes uh-huh. are are being selected for by the environment. Huh. And that and that so coyotes invaded into red wolf territory yeah. as red wolf got eradicated yep. out. Yep. But now those coyotes have genes from red wolves from hybridization mm. and the exact same evolution that made the red wolf is somewhat happening again. They're selecting for larger size and particular traits. Interesting. Um, and so, you know, so it's, it's, it tells me a couple things because it actually brings it back to the extinction for me as well. One, it tells me that those hybrids could be highly utilized for red wolf conservation. Yeah. Two, it tells me that there's probably a lot of variety in red wolf, morphotypes that you know back in the 70s wasn't really appreciated you know we, we sure. missed out on some of those potential other founder animals yeah but three if we bring this back to de-extinction you know i told you earlier we can't make a faithful copy yeah. of a passenger pigeon uh-huh. or a thylacine right mm-hmm. but if we get something that's really close and put it back in its in that environment the environment and evolution is going to do the rest of the job for us because that environment that the thylacine goes back into when those animals start hunting wallabies Mm -hmm. and wombats, they're going to convergently evolve into the the same thing that the historic thylacine was. The passenger pigeons will convergently evolve into the past because we see that happening in this in these red wolf hybrids right they're convergently evolving selecting for the traits of red wolves because the environment is selecting it and what's really nuts on a a few times on islands Mm -hmm. we've actually seen the re-evolution of species two or three times it's been documented uh in birds at least where a bird on an island 
goes extinct. Mm-hmm. And then the same stock that originally colonized that island from, say, the mainland arrives again, sometimes thousands of years later, and evolves into the exact same morphotype again, mm-hmm. an ecotype again. You know, that that's what's guiding our work is, is trying to replicate nature and speed it up so that we can actually meet the demand of the problems we're facing with management and conservation. But bio, that's, that's the, the neat thing about biotechnology is you could almost just consider it accelerated evolution for conservation. And, you know, so that we can finally win the race for a change that, rather than losing species and losing populations. Higher Calling Wildlife is brought to you by Texas Fish and Game Magazine. You can subscribe at fishgame.com. Also subscribe to our e-newsletter that goes out three days a week. God bless. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening to Higher Calling Wildlife. Find us on Facebook at Higher Calling Wildlife, at The Chester Moore on Instagram, and our blog at highercalling.net. To contact Chester, email chester at chestermore.com.